So Elliot and I have just been having an interesting chat with somebody and it's left us, rather than wanting to go and surf giant waves, wanting to eat a packet of waffles. Yeah, those waffles sound delicious, Tom. So we spoke to Glyn about tow surfing, how we got into it, the town of Nazare, as well as the environmental impacts of tow surfing and big wave surfing generally and its carbon footprint. But despite his passion for big waves, I think it was the Trigoris waffles that really excited him. Um, I think uh, we should go get a pack now, Tom. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, I'm game with a cup of tea. Melt, melting it over the over the tea like uh, like you, you and Glyn said you do. Yeah, it's the way forward. That's a winter special, that is. We've made it to 10, and in 10 weeks too. For that mammoth milestone in podcasting, we're going to discuss ways that transcend the realm of mere mortals. With Wales' offering to the global big wave riding scene, Lynn Evans. He might have learned in Ceredigion, but now he charges Nazare each and every winter. Quite a journey. And he's telling it to crest. Yes, you heard it. This is the 10th episode. Double figures. And to celebrate it, Rob has gone on a much-deserved holiday to the Silly Isles, which means I'm joined at the presenter side of the desk again by two-time European longboard champ Elliot Dudley. Welcome and thanks, Elliot. No worries. Thanks, Tom. And I'm going to take the liberty, in turn then, of extending Crest's hospitality to the all-important third voice in the virtual studio today. We're proud to be able to host Glyn Evans for today's episode. How's things, uh, Glyn? Hi, guys. How are we doing, guys? Yeah, good, thanks. Yeah, good, good hey, to catch up. It's been a while. For sure. We'll be hearing plenty from you shortly, but before that, a quick intro for our listeners. I remember a mutual friend telling me they knew someone from Wales who was out at Nazare and charging on one of the tow days. This was a while back now, but the disbelief sits strong in the memory. A Welshman at Nazare? Surely that was someone with a loose connection to the country and not a homegrown. Such a thing couldn't be, could it? But Tom's disbelief was indeed misplaced, and by that point, Glyn hadn't just towed into Nazare. Already an experienced practitioner in the unpaddleable realm, Glyn had notched a crazy session at Mullagmore, as well as sessions at Mavericks. Initially, from Talabont on Wales' central coast, such surf spots are indeed quite a step up. I first came across Glyn through Welsh legend Chris Guts Griffiths, um, and of mutual involvement in stand-up paddling uh, back about 12 years ago. Um, but it's probably about as far as you can get from the full-throttle world of jet skis and wave runners. But since then, Glyn has built quite a reputation as a maestro of water safety in some of ocean sports' riskiest situations. Put simply, Glyn's achievements in waves far beyond what we get at home have placed Wales on the map. So it's an honour to welcome him to Crest. And we're looking forward to hearing about one of the nation's wildest surfing journeys. Thanks, guys. First off then, Glyn, it sounds like quite a paradox. Being a professional in the business of water safety and then flinging yourself into the mercy of stratospheric wave sizes. What's your life looking like at the moment, Glyn? Um, you know, lockdown aside, um, where are you living and what's your day-to-day routine so um yeah i mean travel is a big thing with uh, with surfing and big wave surfing and um yeah that's sort of come to a stop so it's been a time to sort of reassess so spend just staying fit spend a bit of time doing that um and then can't really think much further than that because of because of no movements um i I'm still in Portugal, um, so the season sort of ended, but there's still there's still little swells coming in. It's still really powerful surf, so it's um, there's plenty to get on with and to stay familiar or like suitably familiarly afraid, I suppose is the is is the phrase for, for for keeping yourself ready for when it does get a bit bigger. In terms of the season, obviously, you know we all know that the uh, the Atlantic kind of uh, can generate storms at, at the best of times. Um, what what would you sort of call the the season down there? You know, when does it start approximately? When would you usually aim to get there, and and, and when would you usually leave? It's exactly the same as, as back home in the UK and Wales. You know, we, we look to look to Florida. You know, is Florida getting destroyed by a hurricane on their sort of annual annual business that goes on there? And that's the first indication of swell coming across. 
Um, so we, we get the same swells as we do in the UK, um, just cut down in, sorry, not cut down, where the UK is obviously cut down in size and it's a little bit uh, more raw uh, down in Portugal. But um, being far enough away from the storm, I mean, coming from mid-Wales, we look for a big low pressure and a little hook in the low for, for sort of maybe slight offshores, whereas here we get the swell comes down, but the weather doesn't. Um, so, yeah, it can be from August. We've surfed in August there. It's like a, a really decent-sized day for there, maybe. August Nazare, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, it's, it's, really, it's really hard to sort of scale it because you sort of get lost get lost in it, in it a bit, um, as in going, well, it, it, it was quite a good day, but then it, for that spot, but not necessarily for anywhere else. So, I mean, the wave's about 50 foot high, and that's obviously too... Wow from if i go back 20 30 years that's massive but for there it's it's strange how you normalize it um and um yeah so that that was a decent summer size it didn't have the energy of the winter swell but it was still big and some big drops and no one out but in the winter it's brown a bit like mid wales um, when it's all turned up but in the summer it's blue so it was more of like a what you'd imagine riding in hawaii would be like when you're um when you're obviously in in sort of portugal for the season what, would you describe your role there as as a sort of professional full time big wave surfer, or or have you got um you know you've obviously sort of a specialist in water safety? Um, is that does that take up a lot of your time while you're down there in the winter, or is it literally just waiting around keeping fit for swells? It's yeah, it's a lot. It's a bit of a mixture. I mean, I work away in the summer mostly, and then come back for the winter. I mean, the term professional, what that actually means, is sort of a bit ambiguous. I mean, it, people, I think. If it's used as a term professional, as in you, that's what you're dedicated towards, then yes, if it's professional, as in you, that's what you earn your living from. I don't know how much that exists anymore. Um, but yeah, the focus, it would be like working away and then do, doing a ski season. And then if there's any work, um, safety work, I'll get different people come from abroad who want to, I mean, they're suitably scared and it, every, everyone should be who goes there. It's very big and it's very powerful and it will hunt you down. And you know, riding the waves, the easier part, the kicking out is the most horrifying part because you kick out and sort of eight out of 10 times there'll be a wave breaking where you've just kicked out. So the, the, there is work and people need assistance, you know, running safety. So run safety for different uh, professional kite surfers. We've had some high level foilers come. Guys also, you know, some people, if they have the money, they, they want to turn up and just paddle it and, and get the photo and go home. Um, and it's trying to also help people not take those people out um, and get themselves in a world of trouble um, because, you know, it's, um, th- there are lots of other people who are hanging around there. And if they can make, make a quick buck, then they might think about, about trying to do that. But um, we had a guy came out on a jet surf. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's like a yeah. motorized. He came out, um, s- South Coast lad. He was uh, a nice enough guy. But, um, yeah, it, was, it turned into the American phrase, a yard sale quite quickly, ski thing basically everything just being destroyed on the beach um he was okay wow. but he just had a lot of carnage and um yeah it's i suppose you surf your local break and you see someone paddling out and you can tell by the way they carry their board or whether their legs are spread yeah, you or can, not. Yeah. You, you can if you've got an eye like, what warm-up they do on the sand yeah, yeah, yeah you can work it out and you're like uh, and I don't know. I mean, one of the ways I, I cut my teeth on was a sand reef in Langland, and Guts Griffiths, who you mentioned to me, put, brought me onto that one because it had a little bit more juice. And uh, sometimes people drift out from the uh, from what they call low tide lefts and drift out there, like because it was quite sexy. Oh, this looks quite good. And like, oh god, fresh meat. <laughs> and um, you just <laughs> oh, they haven't seen the set. Oh, this is they're gone. You know, and um, it's like that as well. But the problem is, there's more kit. And um, there's this, the skis you can get out very easily on, you can get in there and get amongst it. And um, it can very quickly, very quickly go south. Um, and uh, It's funny though, Clint, because I think, um, you, know, uh, you know, myself, for example, you know, I, I think I always grew up with a, the utmost respect for the, for the ocean. And I, and I can appreciate as easy as you guys make it look on videos, um, you know, you see on social media, I'm 100% aware of that risk, you know, and that, that sort of thing that you mentioned where you kick out that's being the worst bit you know i've had that thing where you've paddled into a, a pretty hefty wave and you've you've missed it and then you turn around and there's like some the, the biggest set of the days out back and you, you're absolutely um you know bricking it but you know that's all part of learning to surf and 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 you know you know earning your stripes it's 
I, I find it hard to believe that someone would look at it and 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 have such little respect you know for the ocean you know even on a you know a, a 10 foot day which from what compared to what you surf is pretty pretty small you still have a healthy respect for it so it's, it really surprises me that there's kind of these you know pay to play kind of uh people out there giving it giving it a crap yeah pay to play do they sort of feel as if their money uh entitles them to be able to get the experience well i think a little bit i mean <sighs> That's the world we live in, isn't it? I mean, you, to, coming back to what Elliot said, to have respect, you need to understand. You 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 respect. You can only respect something that you fully understand. But if you don't understand it, you you won't respect it. And so, um, so like the, people just have no idea. And like if you like if you're, I mean, Elliot, you, you said it quite eloquently. You know, you understand that if it looks easy, it's actually quite difficult. So, but they miss out that bit. You know that because you've gone through the learning process. We all have of of going from. I mean, the amount of time you have to put in in surfing to actually be able to achieve what we think we'd like to um, is phenomenal, you know. Um, so, but it looks super easy, you know. Like oh, watching tennis play, you smash it 100 miles an hour, just throws the ball, hits it. I mean, how hard can it be? Um, but it's the same. But you just whip me in, and I'll just surf the wave. I mean, that, that's it. And you pick me up, and 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 you're like, no, it doesn't work like that, mate. And I've had people. The best analogy I've been explained is um, imagine downhill skiing without any lifts. If you want to have a, you want to ride down the mountain, you first have to learn how to mountaineer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and surfing is a bit like that. You know, the, the, yeah, like you can now you can go on a foamy, but if you want to paddle out, you have to know how to read the ocean. You have to know how to, I can turn last minute on this yeah. one. No, this one's going to break. I'm paddling out. I'll bail on this wave or I'll duck dive or it's not going to break at all. I'm going to hold my ground yeah. and turn and go. And that is thousands and thousands of computations every second over like over many many years. And so if you don't have that, it's like, well, it's just a wave. Just put me on it. I mean, yeah. I get my photo, and yeah, we've had we've had loads of people from different nations coming. And yeah, it's like a fine balance. If you have a very good driver, then you might be able to get get away with it. But it, it's been used by a number of people as like um a show pony you know like a stunt a stunt spot you can see why sort of some of the purists kind of um i think look at the the sort of circus around big wave riding these days and, and probably kind of um and frown somewhat you know when you think of the the sort of leg- legends of big wave surfing you know your peter coles your greg knolls your ricky griggs um you know they were they were all you know out and out watermen weren't they you know they they surf big waves in the winter but you know they lifeguarded as well and then all you know in the summer they'd be sort of diving and spear fishing and if you've got that they they felt that they needed that kind of level of um of confidence and and an ability to even think of tackling these waves they were completely self-sufficient you know in every way they 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 dove for their food and they you know they they were lifeguards um and and they were 100 percent aware that you know if anything went wrong, they were going to be their own sort of sure. rescuer. Uh, it's a different. It's it's quite different these days to think that you're actually one because the way the sort of size of the waves has got so so extreme. You're you're 100 reliant really on the on the safety cover these days. Um, yeah, I think there was like there was a bit of a mixed message going on in in all of it. I mean, when it first came about, it was like you know it, it turned surfing into a team sport, and that hadn't existed before. And that's probably the greatest part of um of toe surfing is the fact that the other person actually wants to get you on the best wave. Whereas you know if you're surfing with your closest best friends, they see them on the wave that's the best wave of the day, and like oh. part of you is like if they fall, I can take this. Mm. You know that that doesn't ex- that doesn't exist. Yeah. So this is totally like I literally want to get you on the best wave. Like no way, I want to get you on the best wave. And it's generally like that, and that's really rare when someone's completely got your back and actually rooting for you. Whereas there's this underlying um, sort of destabilization of each other going on in surfing, and that that was removed. And that's an amazing thing to have in a sport that you love and you can share with somebody. Um, mm. Then it obviously pushed it into bigger waves as well. And then you also then had more people could just get on a ski. I mean, this is exactly what I did. I, I saw what the guys were doing in Hawaii. I bought a ski. I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, first session ever, Crab Island with uh, Chris Griffiths. Sucked the tow rope up instantly. It got washed in. Only one person came to help me, um, uh, Mark Cook-Jones, a good friend of mine. And he helped me and get to push it along the beach for about an hour and a half in and out until we got it back to, to, to being recovered. And those people laughing. But it didn't matter. It's like... I had a vision of, of where we're going. The the, the story wasn't the, the the story that the point of the, the story isn't wasn't that loads of people did didn't come and help. That wasn't an issue. Um, it was just that that's where I started thinking, oh, I can surf good, I can drive a ski, and I couldn't. You know, and that that's been the big mistake that people have made, and it still happens to this very day. 
I mean, I, I, I was in a competition and both, and it's an aggregate of both driving, both surfing. Um, and, you know, we did really well because we're both good drivers. They're not the best surfers. Uh, you know, there was top, top pro billabong guys who were better who surf bigger waves, but their driver, but they couldn't drive very well, you know. So you, it's it's just a slight change. I know when there was the big, the big push to research the paddle, you know, to try and push the toe guys back, it was, it was, it was interesting because, you know, you've got these people who, if you, if I took you toe surfing and we you took lots and lots and lots and lots of big waves, okay, so you knew how to ride the big wave, you knew how to find the line. All you got to learn now is paddle and get to your feet because you know how to ride the, the, you know the line of the big wave, you know how to do that. So, so yeah, you've got an insight. So to then shut the back door and go, oh, I shut the door behind you. Oh, sorry, yeah, yeah, we've all learned how to ride these big waves, but now no one can tow. Yeah, You're like um, is that protectionism of your status? Um, it's a yeah. I know the um, it was the flat the Fletcher family were quite vocal, weren't they? Um, regarding sort of um, certain big wave surfers who hadn't come from a kind of a traditional surfing background. Sure. Yeah. And yet Herbie yeah. Fletcher was out on a jet ski in Waimea in like probably the early 80s, if not the late 70s. Yeah. I mean, he was one of the, he was Correct. one of the originals, yeah. wasn't he? The first he? ever, yeah. He started off with the, um, with the ribs and stuff. And then he, you know, he was out on the kind of the, his old school kind yeah. of. Yeah, well, Herbie, 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 Herbie would go out and that stand up and bear in mind you have to hold him with your hands yeah. and he'd do rescues without a pipe. So he'd go in, yeah. yeah, you'd then have to hold on to his legs, he'd drag you and he'd be holding onto the handlebars whilst dragging your yeah. weight just by his arms all the way into the all the way into the beach. You know? But then for him to go on to criticise it, you know, you're that's exactly what you're talking about, closing the door behind you, isn't it? Or pulling up the ladder after A you. little bit. No, I understand where they were coming from. No, it, it was more it, it was more that, you know, basically saying he start having things coming out saying this film was made without the use of any jet skis. And like well, what like really how does this I, I can't even i can't even even compute what's going on there because it's like mm -hmm. so keen to step themselves aside and yet it's like these things are a useful rescue tool i, I mm -hmm. teach training with jet skis and you know first foot out the door and like 90 percent of the owners are meatheads yeah right and um and, and you're never going to change that but mm -hmm. so so you're always up against that but you know I, I, we've all seen firsthand the the probably the negatives but then again we've also seen loads of guys have their, their lives saved on jet skis you know we see that all the time on you know in at the jaws events or just generally you know in, in hawaii every winter um but in terms of kind of the the whole big wave thing i mean um you know i've surfed up in mid wales where, where, you, where you're from um it's not exactly an abundance of big wave spots um you know it very rarely like the rest of wales very rarely gets above head maybe head and a half high um how did you how did you sort of first get down the path to big wave surfing you mentioned you mentioned the sandbar for example but was there anything kind of further afield that set you on that path or or was it was i mean it began at home it began in mid wales you used to just surf, surf the main harbour wave in the town and although there were good waves uh, other waves that picked up the most swell and that was the only spot we had so when i moved to um Swansea, the thing that tripped me out was when Slangeneth got too big, you go to a break that was smaller. And so, well, why would you do that when you just, just, why do you just keep surfing the same spot, which is what we basically did. So, however big it was, that was what we went out on. And, and you know, and on the odd day, it could get, it could get, get a decent size. And the challenge is to ride waves that, that were hard to finish. You know, my, my technical surfing has never been like right up there. So, like, enjoyed riding waves that were just you couldn't get to the end of. And whether that was like, um, one that was sucking dry sort of reef break or or just big because it was hard and you're trying to manage your fear and fear is relative i mean i go back home and and it's head high swell um and maybe a head and a half set starts coming in i'm as nervous as, as i am anyway because i want to be in the right spot i don't want to mess it up and stop thinking now you think too much oh my god i'm gonna miss it don't miss it don't be too deep all this sort of stuff it's the same sort of fears and anxieties but whenever i went away because the waves weren't big at home if there was a big day i had to go out because I knew I'd kick myself and I went home and I didn't try. So I went down to Swansea because there's more surfing. You know, the sand reef was a decent taster. I used to go to, traveling around other parts in England as well. But we used to go to south of France every um, used to go to south of France every autumn. I did lifeguarding and then when that finished, we go there. And so we'd go to Hosegore and if it was big at Lenord at the back, I'd just paddle out and have a go. Um, and it's quite, yeah, quite it, an accessible big wave spot, Lenord is, isn't it? Um, yeah. You know, you're talking about this idea that somebody can just suddenly be out there, but um, you know, as long as your board is long enough, it is, it is quite an exciting place to sort of 
be able to, to really step up in terms of size isn't it yeah i mean if you don't have the the jeopardy of rocks on the inside and you've just got to hold your breath or hold your board or just not get caught um then you have a chance i mean it for me it's like continual learning of surfing you know when you first learn you know you're afraid of everything and as you're going to big waves it's it just carries on so it's almost i don't know if it keeps you young but it keeps the I've been on trips with like full, full pros and they're really panicking about this and that, getting really frustrated with their performance. And then I, when I was touring um, stand-up paddleboard competition, I stayed with some guys in Huntington Beach and they were just beginners, but they were so excited. They're so excited. And I like just giving them a couple of tips and it was making their day. And I said, that's the froth. You know, that's the, that's the stoke. And um, so you're just looking for that and being excited. And you're like, oh, that was close. Nearly, nearly, nearly died. Like all good stories start <laughs> with. Oh, nearly. Oh, did you tell you about the time I nearly died? Yeah, exactly. And we like stories. And um, yeah. I think you see that frustration a lot with surfers, um, especially ones that maybe aren't willing to, to change what they ride, for example, or the waves that they surf. Um, it's very easy to become kind of to sort of stagnate, yeah. really. Um, you're kind of, from your point of view, you know, how is your equipment change you i presume you started on a on a surfboard and then moved on to surfing later on or was it um or have you always is, is, is it just surfing and then and then surf um after that i started in the surf life saving club and i, I had to go on the rescue miles and we were told to kneel on it and i was only about 13 and i was kneeling on it. it's like i'm sure you're supposed to like continue and then get to your feet and that was it and then i bought an inappropriate shortboard like we all did that was too small and and delayed my progression um and then started to shift around and move on to different bits of kit and then moving to swansea was much better because you had lots of people who a were good surfers like chris griffiths you know and um and they'd be and they could say yeah that, that that's a piece of crap you know like, okay fair enough i'll take that and what would you suggest you know i think sort of shedding the, the the sort of ego a little bit will help you improve a lot quicker. But yeah, it was shortboard and then longboard. And then it, I got into paddleboarding because it was a learning experience. And it's it, although it's annoying being rubbish at something when you start, it's actually really good fun when you start to improve. Mm. And like learning, I've, I've been learning to like kite surf, for example. And that's been amazing because you get, you improve quickly. Um, but... Uh, if you listen to everybody like oh right oh what are you riding i was like oh, i don't know or what's the like speak to people who really know what they're talking about and you get good quick and rather than going no no, no i don't want that I, I this is how i do it you know this is my way mm. so yeah just the learning experience and then you get to a point where there's great crossover i'm sure like, your longboarding i'm sure that's made you a smoother shortboard surfer um and then definitely in, in your paddleboarding you're already familiar with a really large board long rails and how to drive long and get speed out of those things and trim well no, yeah. sure. I think um, once you once you've ridden a variety of boards, you know, even from my point of view, just long sort of long boards, mid lengths and short boards, um, you don't think anything you think nothing of trying something different, you know. Um my short boards are you know, even my shorter boards, they're they're so different, all of them, you know, different tails, different thin setups, different thicknesses. Um and that that's just because that's you know, like you, that's what I've always tried new new equipment and that's always been part of my enjoyment of surfing. Mm. Um I really, I actually really, really feel sorry for those guys that kind of um, that would think, you know, even even widening their board by half an inch would be a huge, a huge thing, uh, and they would really, they would really sort of, you know, um, focus on that, and 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 it would ruin that, and they think, oh, it's, it's affecting my performance. When in reality, we all know that half an inch, you know, you know, is is, is if anything, it's going to help you probably catch more waves. But mm. you know, to be that sort of pernickety about your equipment would, would really. I, I, it must be a nightmare. Uh, I, I can't imagine what it's like. So, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm on. I'm on your sort of um, on your wavelength there with. Trying to yeah, it. I remember seeing. I don't. I don't have a lot of time for his sort of shtick in surfing nowadays. But I remember seeing Dane Reynolds say something about how um, the sort of you know the modern shortboard is designed to give you the maximum amount of control in a particular context, like a kind of a, a sort of a. a then ASP, now WSL, judging criteria context. And that if you remove that control from a surfboard, it becomes all about the joy of riding the wave again and about the glide. And I remember hearing an interview in which Dane Reynolds said that, and then um, very shortly afterwards taking a, a far from perfect uh, log out in, in, a, in one of the world's famous long point breaks and suddenly really enjoying myself because I wasn't putting performance pressure on myself. So I think that, that that's really interesting. 
I, I kind of want to ask about equipment though because I'm wondering about how much room there is though to add an inch or take away an inch in the kind of equipment that you're using to tow into some of these waves um you know and, and again I, I wonder also Glenn you know we were talking about how you sort of stepped up you know so coming from Taliban surfing those waves in Keradigian and then you've talked about having these sort of training sessions out at the sandbar um in in Langland uh, and also I know you you towed the Mipton sandbank at one point as well uh, near Mumbles then you're talking about Lenord, and I know also G-Land was a sort of a step-up wave for you along the way. Um, and again, you know, once you get to G-Land, then you're probably looking at that board that's going to give you that right amount of control. Um, but then still, you know, I suppose like a step-up board or a gun for somewhere like G-Land, that then is completely different again now to these to these tow boards. So what would be a kind of average length and weight tow board? How much does body weight influence what that's going to be you know how do you make those decisions about what size to get one of those boards at um and and how you know are the controls different you know how do you how do you apply weight and how do you turn those things so how different is the equipment glenn this i mean it is fairly different uh to big wave paddling but compared to surfing they're similar to short boards but they're like very very different to the big wave guns i mean with the with the towing with the jet ski you've removed the displacement element of the board. So the displacement, so you can paddle it. Um, and it's just a planing hull. So they're really thin, fairly flat, and, um, and narrow. So, so they can sit in the wave, knife in, and you can turn them. The one sort of dimension. So you'd be looking like under six feet, like 5'10 is, is, is a nice, wow. happy size. The stance is crazy wide. You just like... It's quite uncomfortable, but when you're riding, it's necessary to handle all the bumps. Um, so your foot is, your, your toes and heel are almost on the rails <clears throat> where, the, where the board narrows at the tail. And how would the feet placement and the strapping compare to, say, a snowboard? You know, is there such a thing as duck feet or, you know, do you, would you have a, you know, a 90 degree or a 45 degree between front and back foot? Yeah, front, front foot's usually 45. Some people put back at 90, some like duck foot. It's the, the back foot is fairly 90 degree sort of um, right. on, uh, as position. Um, some will have them slightly turned forward. Yeah. Um, but, but it's, it's, the strap isn't like a towboard, uh, a snowboard strap where you're locked in. Your foot still moves. Not a binding. No, exactly. So you arch your foot. That grips the strap. And if you wipe out, you relax your foot. The board slips away. You're not jamming your feet in. Right. Um, so so you, you can rotate your feet in the strap a little bit to help with what you need and get toe pressure and heel pressure as you go along. But then then it comes down to weight. You know, if you're dealing with physics, speed, mass, speed is um, forces, mass times acceleration. So the heavier the board, you're basically charging the board up with kinetic energy, with potential energy, with the ski. And you pull hard on the rope and you let go and that all turns into kinetic. Right. But because there's weight in the board, that will carry the speeds through the chops. And the chops are the challenge because it's big and you know the chops become big and you've got lots of bump to go through. So some guys are running full carbon boards with like 12, 11, 12 kilos of right. uh, uh, overall weight. And does carbon so absorb less shock than fiberglass? Yes, it does absorb less. There's no flex in it at all. Right. Um, so your knees take a beating, but it's um, because there's no flex and the board flexes, you're, you're losing energy. Right. So a flexible board will dissipate energy more, so kind of lose speed, mm. but it's a harder ride. I mean, some of the guys um, out in Hawaii always swarm by wood, you know, because you just can't beat the sort of the, the natural fibers, you know, the millions of years of evolution of those trees swinging in the wind and taking shock and load. That's something that's reflected, and I'm sure it's probably quite transferable in um, in snowboard technology, isn't it? They um, Even the best snowboards, even to this day, still have, have wood cores for that reason, don't they? Um, yeah, it's got the the best flex patterns, I guess. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. It's 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 sort of quite nice that you still can't beat that, you know. Yeah, all all the tech that that we've got. But um, so yeah, carbon is just for stiffness to and strength, um, not for the actual uh to keep the board light. Mm-hmm. And then people mess around with uh with weight where they have it between their feet, where they have it center of effort. You know, it's, it's directly between your two feet or slightly forward or slightly back. And um, some of the more high performance guys are now moving to, you know, these boards aren't point and shoot and run. These are for turns now. So you're now starting to actually be able to do huge turns on waves. And so you're now you're moving into the snowboard realm 
And is that the closest sort of likeness in terms of the, the controls on these boards? Do they ride more like snowboards and surfboards? I mean, snowboarding is specifically, you have to have a completely balanced stance. It could be asymmetric, it could be symmetrical front and back leg. Yeah. And that's not the case with these. You're super low all the time, knees taking all the shock. Because you're going so fast, you don't really have to drive. It's about sort of engaging the forces through the rail. You don't have to work super hard and press really hard. You have to, mm. it's hard work to control the speed and the forces yourself, but it's not like you have to work really hard to turn the board. Mm. Um, I think it's about having good wave judgment and knowing where you can do a turn. And if you're ready to do a turn and, you know, there's, there's nothing that puts more fear into me is that going, taking off maybe slightly behind the ball and laying a bottom turn right in the pit. You know, that's, that's, me that's high risk stuff because if you slip an edge you're in the worst spot mm. um and so you know the, the really have to be happy with your equipment and with these with the boards what's the, the point and shoot boards are about 16 wide i mean point and shoot is to get towed into a bomb aim down down the line down the shoulder and just make it and the ones that turn they bring them more to sort of 17 17 wide to be able to go rail to rail and they're actually using the rail to so that's to create more of a of a taper off between the middle of the board and the tail then is it if it's 17 wide there's more of a line drawn into the tail a little bit but it means you can actually generate speed through through turning so you actually go faster by putting turns right. and also the, the logic is when you put it on the rail there's less wetted area in the water so there's less drag okay so if the board's flat you know or when you've just got an edge and one fin in it's actually going to go quicker um, and it's also going to knife through the chop because you'll cut through it. You're not slapping over them. It's interesting what you said there, Glenn, with the, you know, the, the nerves around the bottom turn, you know, it's, um, you know, in not what I'd call normal wave surfing, um, you know, a bottom turn is something you practice 20 or 30 times every time you surf. Um, whereas if you think that the, the number in comparison, the number of waves you catch on your toe board is, is pretty minimal. So it, it must be very hard to kind of, to sort of, to, to scale that up if you if you know what i mean from small waves up to big waves uh because the equipment is only used when it when it is pretty serious stuff compared to yeah no you're, you're spot on there i mean if we got we got on small days and you might get like 30 40 waves just back to back we kick out grab the rope straight away go around get whipped into another one getting towed out being whipped into another one. so you, you can you can get a lot of waves when it's small but you're exactly like you said the best way to test your big wave tow board is when it's big it's like uh yeah okay and so everyone gets very nervous about making adjustments and so you can get locked into having your board not set up right but you don't want to make a change yeah sure. um because you're like oh you know if i make a change and it all goes wrong or the board's perfect or i destroy it or you know th th there's so much jeopardy going on there um but yeah you, you have to practice in the small stuff but fundamentally i mean basic route uh, roadmap for a big wave surfer if you're a good small wave surfer and you can manage the fear you'll be a good big wave surfer and the guys who uh, fearless but maybe their their ability isn't as good and then maybe maybe i'll put myself in that bracket i'm not sure but um you'll see guys who are technically good so they just know how to read lines and everything and they can they just write, write, know how to ride waves so i reckon dudley's getting tempted here a little bit you, i think you, uh, you i was going to mention kyle any because you know from from what i from my sort of experience of watching big wave riding he seems to be one of the best really doesn't he because you know he is such a rounded surfer he rips yeah anything is he controversial um, though i mean some of that kind of uh you know the 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 aerial antics he does um well, i mean it, it depends what is controversy i mean the 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 kid has just learned he's lived in straps and um so i mean windsurfing kite surfing right so kite surfing you you learn to be in the air all the time you're floating you're flying your, your rotations and all you just get used to all the stuff that um, I touched on like um, I've been learning how to like do loads of other multidisciplinary sports, but kiting, for example, if I do one hour of kiting, I do one hour of board riding, one whole hour, 60 minutes, feet in the straps, toe side, like front side, back side, I'm riding. I do one hour of surfing, I get two or three minutes of wave riding. So, you know, imagine that over his whole life in the windsurfing. I mean, just the board time, but it's, it's unquantifiable. Mm. And then, yeah, he's, he's just doing what's, what's fun, you know. If you've ever done 360 in surfing before you could do one, it was all you wanted to do. Yeah. And once you've, done, once you've done it, like, yeah, done. Yeah. Uh, they do actually feel kind of fun too, don't they? Imagine doing yeah, so, it in, yeah. in the lip of a wave at you know, Nazare or, uh, you know, Jaws. It's probably even more fun. <laughs> 
you can argue that you can argue it's not a functional maneuver, but um, neither is surfing. Oh no, it's fun. Oh, therefore it's functional. Is it fun? It's therefore yeah. yeah. So if it's fun, you know, just, mm. that's the most important part. A lot of people lose sight of that. You know, uh, there's there's a lot of hating going on these days in surfing because of the kind of um, the diversity, I guess, and the the mm. range of equipment being ridden. But you know, that's what I I have no issues. I was I would say to people, I have no issues with anyone in the war as long as they're having fun and they're not endangering anyone. That's that's kind of yeah. my, my golden rule. Really. Yeah, no, precisely, precisely. I mean, in in our, in our team, I do. I've been my my, my latest uh, endeavor has been foiling, doing a lot of foiling, mm-hmm. and that is just another level of challenge and it forces you to relax and you have to be very very gentle and subtle and calm and it's minute movements and you know my toe partners are like oh, foiling looks dangerous i'm not i'm not going like that it's got a big razor on the bottom that's too dangerous and i was like oh you're surfing without any fins on your board today are you so what do you mean is it come on but basically rather than going oh we're going surfing it's now like we're going wave sliding like so i'll bring my foil the other guy's going to paddle he's going to tow and and it's 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 irrelevant you know everyone's riding waves and everyone's having a great time and um, in terms of um foiling um i think one of the kind of contra- well one of the things we've got a, there's a few guys that do it locally um one of the amusing things you know we, we joke about is that the foiler usually wears the helmet when in fact uh, it's the yeah, rest of the water obviously <laughs> need the helmet in that situation but i think where, where, where we are it's quite densely populated most spots are crowded um in my opinion there's a lot most of the spots that you see foilers at aren't particularly well suited to foiling um i presume you know where, where you are there's a lot of kind of big bombies and um, crowded beaches for you to do it on because i know in hawaii you know that they, they tend to, you know a lot of the guys the kind of um the florences um you know they they foil and they talk quite a lot about going you know they, they're always at places where there are no other surfers but then they have an abundance of spots to do it at um you know, is that something, what, what are your thoughts in, you know, on having foils in, in a sort of a normal lineup where there's other surfers? It's totally unnecessary. So the place I surf, I like, I, I'm guilty. I ride a helmet because I haven't had the foil in my head before. And, you know, I've suffered this from paddleboarding. So I, the in Portugal, it's all full on shortboarding. It's shortboard, 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 shortboard. So I turn out in the powerboard, everyone's giving me abuse straight away. It's like, yeah, I'm used to this. It's like, look, I'm going to surf here. You're going to surf there. We're not going to be anywhere near each other because it's it's a bigger piece of kit and they associate them, them with kooks same with foiling the 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 little beach that i surf on in the winter when i'm here i have to work really hard because i want to surf that break so you know if, i won't go and surf where anyone else is if, if someone paddles out inside of me and i i, I have to stop surfing because i don't want to go anywhere near them and i try and surf a wave where there's no one at because i want to keep surfing there so fundamentally it, I believe you're, you're you're right. They are they allow you to go out on the, when it's rubbish. They allow you to go out where you don't go out on a shortboard. Like I won't take my standard powerboard when it's piping double overhead barrels, you know, because that's not the right equipment. Mm. And yeah, I can ride a foil in the pocket quite deep, but it doesn't mean I have to. So it is a shame that that, that people do come out and feel the need to go through all these different people um and, and to the crowd there's plenty of awful waves for shortboarding and it's perfect for fall i mean the, the downwind stuff they're now so efficient you can ride ocean swells that's really exciting and we talked about having not much time on the board you know not much board time or feet in the wax or however you say it um these allow you to do that and um it really really it, i think in france like in anglet they banned it and you know so straight away you've got a few people doing ridiculous stuff and um yeah, I, I can't seem to understand why people need to prove themselves by slicing through a through a crowd of surfers. Yeah, it doesn't uh, doesn't uh, cry logic. Um, you've sort of touched on it a bit um, already, really, in terms of you know your ex- experimentation with different types of equipment, kite surfing, foiling, surfing. Um, do you have a specific training program, or is it literally just spend as much time in the water as possible riding as much different kit i mean do you do, um, do you follow any kind of apnea training uh free diving that kind of thing do you do any extra cardio uh, or is it really just time in the water time in the water is, is, is the primarily is, is a primary one as long as it's mixed discipline i think if you're doing one sport i mean normal surfing is just one way so you end up with your, your rear calf is bigger than your front calf um, you, you have over the lifetime you get like um, twisting wear on your spine and things like that so doing sports where you can go both ways is quite good um, a bit of cycling the the as far as the apnea stuff i try and be really really fit so 
that when I need to preserve my oxygen in my blood, I don't have a big demand on it. Um, and I've worked with, with a couple of sort of sports scientist guys. Everyone has their thing, and you basically just have to have something that you're happy and sits comfortable with you. Um, long, long-term breath hold. I, I'm not, you know, you can hold your breath for three, four, five minutes, but in my recess stuff, you know that if someone you don't resusc resuscitate them after six minutes, they start suffering brain damage. So I don't really want to go anywhere near those sorts of times as far as holding my breath. So I think I have done apnea courses and they are really, really good because you get comfortable being uncomfortable. So if you hold your breath for a long time, you start convulsing. It's incredibly uncomfortable. And if you can get used to that, then when it happens, you're like, well, I've been here before. And I think that I primarily for the, the mental training, it's that. And the physical one is just, yeah, just active every day um, and just, just don't eat crap. Um, so, yeah, junk food and stuff like that is probably not ideal. But that said, you still have to eat. But um, no, I don't have like a really, really strict like program. I know I've been um, watching um, Ian Walsh quite a lot, um, some of his training videos, and it's quite interesting um, what you mentioned. Uh, and this is I've spoken to a few kind of um, kind of personal trainers that specialize in surfing. And that's the big one is that unilateral thing. Um, most most surfers have real imbalances because, like you said, they they only ever you know they put most of their strain on their back leg and they're only rotating the one way. Um, so yeah, you know that's one of the things. Having watched that, I've, I've you know I've always done kind of a lot of unilateral stuff myself, really to kind of get rid of those imbalances. Mm. Um, is there any kind of do you have like a, a a gym program that you follow, or is it just just kind of? There's a, a a good friend of mine. Um, he's a personal trainer in Aberystwyth, actually, and he built me a little program. But I mean, I think he talks about there's only like eight real movements um, that you have to do, and so it's just shoulders and posture um, and core. So I mean, the the the, the standard basics sort of weightlifting exercises that you get taught in the gym are the are, are almost all you need to do. But, um, you know, we get bored, so you create loads of little tools and gadgets, gizmos to try and make it less boring. Um, but just um, strengthening the shoulders because they end up rounding a lot all the time. Um, abs because you're pulling on the rope a lot. And a little bit of neck work as well, keeping your – I think when you get to some really – get the really big waves, you've got to – I'm not, I don't have the physique that I think would be ideal, but you know, the, the pretty solid, maybe not as flexible muscle guy with a huge thick neck, think of Laird Hamilton or someone. Mm. When you're taking these forces, they're so great. You know, mm. we always think, you know, I want to be light and flexible. I don't want to be flexible. You snap, I don't want my knee dislocating because I'm too flexible. Mm. I'd rather have some, um, some muscle around it. So I think like surfing jaws in, in board shorts is way more scary than say surfing mullet more in a, a six mil wetsuit and uh, with loads of flotation because at least you've got something to try and keep your body together. Mm. And um, as you get older, the, the, that you in, if you get injured, it takes long, longer to injure, longer to heal, sorry. Um, and then it's harder work to get back to where you were. So I think, yeah, prevention is just, as long as you're doing something every day, um, then... Uh, Interesting uh, what you said about the, um, it's a fine line between that kind of, the, the strength to be able to handle the beating in the same way, say a rugby player would, would, you know, like, um, you know, we all see, you know how much bigger rugby players are these days. Yeah. Due to the impacts they take. And it's similar with big wave surfing, really. You do have to be pretty solid uh, in certain respects, but then it's that flexibility. You can't lose that because that can then, you know, if, if an arm, if an arm's being wrenched back, say, and you haven't got that shoulder flexibility, that, that can in itself cause an injury. So it must be a, it's a fine line to tread. Uh, um, it's one that I, I probably think I'd struggle with actually. Into the special it's also interesting but to I'm... hear you guys talk about where a training program is relevant to improve performance and where a, a training program is relevant to keep you safe or to prevent the chances of, of injury. Because I suppose there's kind of a dual purpose there, isn't there? There's training to actually survive a, a bad outcome on a wave and then there's training to get that board off the bottom and reduce the chances of the bad outcome yeah fully i mean i think that's what happens as we age isn't it you know you want to be the peak performance and then you're like oh, i want to maintain now i want to maintain this level i don't want it to detract mm. i had a birthday card sent to me once and it just said it was about swimming because i i mean swimming i think actually think about it, it's probably the ultimate training for as far as i'm concerned just yeah, I agree no, no yeah risk. i do too it's, i mean 
if I have my way, so the, the world's worst one is running, but most accessible, the most least accessible is swimming, and it's the best one for you. So if it was free swimming pools for everybody, it would be it would be a lot easier. But yeah, low low impact, really familiar. You can do underwater breaths. You can simulate all of it, and, and you come out tired. But yeah, really really good. But the birthday card. Go on, Dave. Go on, Edith. I always find it funny with the the swimming though. It's people because I've sort of my background with doing triathlon and other things. People always ask me about fitness for surfing, and they all want to avoid swimming for some reason. They, <laughs> they all want some fancy yeah. gym routine that they can do, yeah. or some new, you know, CrossFit, yeah. or you know, something that's a bit more interesting. Yeah. But the hands down, hundred percent best thing you can do to keep you fit for surfing is swimming. Like. But it's but yeah, I'm in hundred percent agreement with you. But also it's, it's literally the most boring thing you can do. It's like, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's so minor. But if you get good, if you get to a point where you can maybe improve your times a bit, I mean, yeah. I, I retrain the lifeguard every year, and that's a great target to to make sure I hit my time and now, start yeah. to improve and, and all and all that sort of stuff. That that's really good. But um, yeah, you you were saying about the oh. The, that was it. I had a, I had a yeah, card. Yeah, what's the card? Yeah. But it says it, it's, it's had a swimmer on the front, and it said sometimes you swim uh, to, to stay to stay fit, other times you swim to stay alive. <laughs> yeah, wise words, I reckon. Um, that's actually quite a good point to bring up the place that has been sitting in the background of a lot of this conversation, a place that people obviously have to sort of train and prepare themselves psychologically for. Um, Nazare. It's a question that I think often gets kind of taken for granted when they talk to people about the actual wave. But what what's the sort of experience of the place like? You know, what kind of town is Nazare? Um, you know, where do you where do you ride out from? How long does it take to get from the harbour to the wave? You know, what's it look like when you're out to sea looking back at land? Uh, just tell us about the place a little bit, Ken. So Nazare is a small fishing village split into two areas. There's um, the upper part, which is called Sitio, which is up on the cliff, which is where the Farol is. The Farol is the lighthouse that you see in all the iconic shots. And then the lower part is Nazare town. Now, to the south of the Farol, which you see in the imagery, is um, the trench, the really deep water trench, which is continental depth. So basically deep ocean depth water can be right the way to the shore. And what that does, that funnels swell, and it funnels swell down it and then when it gets near the shore it bends away and bends away to actually the beach called Praia do Norte which is uh, uh, basically North Beach which is where we do all the big wave surfing. Now where that trench continues to the beach there's a little a little keyhole where the waves don't break even when it's huge and that's where the fishermen used to go out and they'd row out from there and go fishing so they still do all the traditional fishing from there but now it's out of the big harbour which is just to the south which is where we launch our, our skis and we drive across about 15 minutes it's very easy. It's a deep water um, harbour, so all weather rarely ever closes. And one of the few all weather harbours um, along that stretch of the coast. So when it's huge, we can still get out. And the fishing still carries on in the village. And, you know, you've got, you've got lots of traditional, uh, they do the fish drying. And, I mean, the whole place is steeped in history about respect for the sea and lost lives. And the Farol used to be a fort where they used to um, protect the town from r ravaging pirates who'd come in. A lot of them were from the sort of Nordic. And you, if you see oh, a right, Portuguese yeah, woman with blonde, with blonde hair there, they'd say she was like the, the descendant of, a, uh, of, of, of one of the Vikings, of a, 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 pirate's, a pirate's offspring. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, the people there are very friendly. They're very, they're very accommodating. But it's also become a little bit of like sort of a, a real of, um, of tourist resorts. So in the summer, it's absolutely packed. Um, right. The South Beach has got a huge cliff that protects it from the prevailing northwest winds. So everyone's there. We have a lot of wind in the summer. And so um, people want it as hot as they can get it. And that's where they do. So well, it's all bed and breakfast, all packed out. So it, it, it used to be very quiet in the winter. And now it's picked up a bit because of the surfers and people travel there to come and see the um, the big waves. And it's got like a, a mystical um, a legend about a, the king was chasing a deer and the deer jumped over the cliff and the, the, the horse that the, the king was on was going to do the same. And this saint came out and stopped the, the king's horse and saved the king. And that's the Lady of Nazare. And so there's a pilgrimage for people to come to that. So there's quite a lot of different things going on there. Sounds like a, quite an interesting place. It's funny you mentioned people going up there to visit. My uh, uh, A friend of mine, his nephew, lives down on the Algarve. Um, he's from Wales originally. But yeah, if, if there's a swell at Nazare, he uh, 
his dad takes him out of school and and drives him up there so it's uh it's become a bit of a kind of a, a tourist attraction in itself just for the big waves which is uh fully and in the Farol is now a big museum with all big wave surface boards there and there's like a 3d topographical uh, map of the of the bottom to understand how the swell comes in and um yeah i mean it, basically the swell matches in at full speed and in the when it when the swell opposite the beach feels the beach that part of the wave slows down whereas the part that's over above the the trench is still running at ocean speed so it basically that section starts to overtake so you have this bending effect where it then bends and the beach is shallow to the north the trenches to the south that causes the a-frame then yeah and that, and that makes it bend in hard from the south and then cross up the beach and that's how you have those wedges Wow, um, and that's what makes it so special. So we've we've all seen sort of some of the um, some famous big wave surfers who sort of um, ended up on the wrong side of of that wave you just mentioned. Um, you know, Maya Gabera, um, Alex uh, Botello, um, yeah. and obviously a a local sort of well, relatively local from North Devon, Andrew Cotton, um, who had that horrific wipeout where he got launched. Um, I mean, looked about twenty-five foot in the air um, out of the white water. Um, I believe you you were there, Glenn, and, and you witnessed that. Yeah, that was um that was a really really decent sized day. I think some giant waves came in that day. We were hosting a professional kite surfer who'd come from Hawaii to ride some of the waves there, and we were just walking him through the beach, just showing him this is where we'll get you if you get washed in. This is where you don't want to be, such and such. And we saw him drop into this wave. We saw Andrew Cotton drop into a wave and. Um, it looked like he was hunting for the barrel, but you know it's such a twitchy uh, wave, Nazare, and sometimes it barrels, sometimes it doesn't, and and on that occasion it didn't, and he just got caught in the slightly in the wrong spot, and yeah, the rest is the rest is that. I mean, I I, I don't know how he broke it, whether he broke his back when he landed from being bounced or whether when it hit him, but yeah, I mean, static water, one cubic meter in size weighs a ton, so imagine that moving, and then lots of them, you know, it's um. It's it's amazing how we don't get more injured by impacts with the waves. I don't yeah. know why, but we just you've just surely... touched on something I was going to mention. There, it's one of the it's always been, and not even just big waves. Waves from one foot to to a hundred foot. It always baffles me how there aren't more injuries within surfing. You know, whether it's the super crowded day at Langanif where people are ditching boards all over the shop, um, to the you know to the day at Jaws where there's twenty guys out towing in and it's carnage. It, I mean, touch wood. Obviously, we don't have have more of them, but uh, it always amazes me that surfing kind of remains relatively injury free. So, uh, I, I don't know whether it's something to do with our bodies are made up with like how many, whatever percent, eighty, ninety percent water, and whether somehow that's got something to do with it. I don't. It's a theory that was thrown at me once. I have no idea why. But you know, if we if we replaced the uh, the waves for, for trees, big lump, big trees falling on us, we'd be like at the same weight. Yeah. We'd be, yeah. Or, or even no, snow. No you there. know, when you think how many people come back from a, a ski trip with a broken bone, um, yeah. it happens all the time. Maybe I mean maybe it's the experience side. You know, um, most people go on a ski trip once a year for a week, and they've got relatively little fitness and experience. I, I think it's also. The reason why surfers then go and get themselves in trouble when they go to snow or when they go and play football and things like that. Yeah. <laughs> sort of stay, that. Stay away from the park, gentlemen. Yeah. Yeah, forget, <laughs> forget that you know, the, the, the normal ground hits back hard when you when you fall on yeah. it. Um, exactly. Other big waves that you've big wave spots that you've been to, um, Glyn, Mullockmore, where you you won the Billabong Toe Session in 2011 with uh, with Peter Conroy in pretty giant conditions, Mavericks. Aileen's as well in in Ireland. Is there a kind of a, a general vibe that these spots have? Um, you know, a, a kind of that, that same sort of atmosphere, or are they each quite unique? And does each of them take a bit of getting used to? Oh yeah, they, they each they each take a lot of getting used to for sure. I mean, it helps if you've got friends who are your peers who you surfed with, and and you sort of you see them doing it like, well, yeah, I can, I, I want a piece of that. And it's it's getting there. It's managing the fear. I mean, I have I have a simple strategy, and that is that. I will go out and I say to myself, I don't have to surf today. So you take all that anxiety away because that's what used to wreck me. You know, like, oh God, what happens now? I'm going to catch a wave now if I fall and have I trained enough and all this sort of stuff. You just go, you go out, you look at it and you go, oh, I don't fancy it today. And that's fine. And you have in your memory that you've done that before. Go, I just don't feel it today. And then sometimes you sit out there for three or four hours and go, oh God, I want it so bad. And then you've got the confidence to to go for it does but, any one of these spots stand out as a sort of favorite they each have something different they each have something different i mean aliens is a classic beautiful wave that can that on the right day 
um, it can be like a two foot uh, roll into like a cavernous 15 foot barrel, um, of which I, has eluded me, although I haven't put, I used to put a bit of time in there, but I haven't put, um, haven't been there for a long time. Mulligmore is just phew, nasty, sketchy, but amazing. Just, ah, they all, they all have that fear factor. And um, phew, yeah, I can, uh, it's the best, the best surf sessions I've ever had are with my friends. And everyone's laughing and it might be 50 foot it might be two foot um it's the, the the big wave element is just an extra extra dynamic but it's still it's still rooted in you know the love of surfing from from when you began you sort of touched on it there really with the different spots that you um you've obviously surfed and, and towed at um <laughs> explain to us the, the logistics of traveling you know i think you know we've all traveled with surfboards it's difficult enough i presume that you 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 know, you generally don't travel with a jet ski unless it's maybe from Wales to Ireland, for example. Um, do you ever transport them, um, or you know, or is it more reg- you know more often the case that you're riding um, a ski that is is already in the location? And if if so, can there be differences between skis that can make it slightly slightly tricky to to get used to sometimes? Yeah, I mean, the, you're right. UK Ireland was a drive, and then we got to a point with the ski on the ferry, and then we get to a point where maybe. If you're going to do three or four trips a year, maybe more, it's worthwhile maybe going in with somebody there locally to have uh, have a share in a ski. So there's one when you need it, if you need it. Generally, there's only two main brands of skis and they do handle differently. So you need to know which one you, you want to work with. Um, so basically like Apple or or Android, that, that, that sort of difference. You, you either like one or the other. Um, they all operate pretty similarly within either all the Apple ones, which is the Sea-Doo or the Android, which would be like the, the Yamaha or vice versa. And typically you want them left as stocks. So you don't want any modifications on them because they're going to tire the engine um, and you get gains, but you also get losses. So you can get it more powerful, but then it uses more fuel. Um, and it ties something else out. You can get a bigger impeller, which is like an internal propeller that gives you more drive um, at the bottom end, but you've got no top top end speed. That would like changing the size of the wheels on your car. You put little wheels on, you accelerate really quickly, but your top speed is rubbish all the other way around with, with giant cartwheels. Top speed is huge, but it's terrible off the mark. Um, so typically, no, they're all standard. They all come from the same factory. And nowadays, it I mean, it's logistics. It's, it's a big difference from you know, just walking down with your board, maybe really simplistically 60 years ago, no leash, wooden board, carry it down, paddle out have a few waves now it's like go get the ski go get the fuel all that sort of stuff so um it can be pretty full-on um and again you need a team to, to share the load do you have um, to be mechanically minded at all um i mean you know it helps. something that you can do yourself or is it are they pretty simple to fix and maintain and that the older ones it helps i mean on my journey i i went i i realized i had a big gap in my knowledge and i went and worked at a place in sheffield of all places that rebuilt skis from scratch and cut my teeth mechanically the modern ones are like modern cars you know plastic with plug a computer in and the computer says no or it shows you the dollar sign meaning you've got to pay a lot of money to repair it um but the a basic understanding of, of mechanics will of course help um and help you understand if something's wrong um because you know, if it breaks, you can't push it home like a motorbike. If the chain comes off, if it breaks, you're in. A, uh, it's a more tricky situation. So you do have to be on it with your maintenance and making sure everything's good. So it isn't like it's basically for an hour surf. It's two hours of work, hour before setup, hour after, and it is a. It, and if when you're learning, like any sport, it's a real off putter because it's a lot of work for not a huge amount of return. But as you get better, your wave count goes huge. The fun factor is high. And um, yeah, you can get some big waves hopefully in the mix as well. Now, we've all probably, I mean, you know, we've all been in the water when there's been, you know, um, jet skis out there. Um, you know, you've always, one of the sort of things that kind of, I think, uh, sort of frustrates a lot of surfers is when they are out there is the, the kind of petrol smell. Um, there's obviously that kind of environmental side of it. You know, ultimately you are burning fossil fuels to, to power the jet ski. Um, but then on top of that, I guess with the big wave sort of world tour and, and most big wave surfers sort of chasing winter around the world, there's the travel element of it. Um, is that something that you you just sort of have to accept, um, or is there are there ways that you know either yourself or other big wave surfers are mitigating that, um, you know, offsetting carbon that kind of thing, or trying to minimise their their carbon footprint? Is that something that kind of crops up in the big wave not world. many people talk about that i think because i mean to to be 
into riding giant waves that could inverted commas potentially kill you, you really have to be quite sort of focused, whether that's narcissistic or self-centered or driven, you know, there's many different ways of describing it. So to have that, you know, the, that's the uncomfortable, the uncomfortable truth of, of humans that move around a lot, you know, we move around and we chase things and we, everything is, is, is made of hydrocarbons and plastic and fuel and stuff like that. So, I mean, Ironically, usually people who have achieved everything they want to achieve can then be in a position where they think they should be more responsible. But when you're in the middle of actually trying to get to where you want to go, you were like, I want to get there no matter what. So it can be quite hypocritical to say, you know, I've, I've done a lot of these things now and now I'm trying to maybe cut down on the amount of flying. But unfortunately, or fortunately, that's yeah. the choice has been taken away from us right now. But so it's it's very difficult to, I mean, you can say, oh, right, well, I've got solar panels on my house, so now I can fly. It's, 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 anything that you can do to reduce is better and there's always going to be someone who will do less than you and therefore have a lower impact and it's it's a, it's pretty complex to have a decent straight answer i suppose that there, there isn't one really um i think the honest answer is actually the better one the one you've given really um i think you know to try and it's a reality of of the sport isn't it so um well, I, I i like what you said about the, the hypocrisy as well within surfing that there's a lot of people that have made a career in surfing through traveling and their amazing photo trips to far off places and then once they've got the following and the sponsorship then decide they will then go and i'm going to reduce my calm footprint and stay at home but they can do that because of yeah. what they've done before um so yeah that's something that that i've noticed a lot over the last few years um uh, you know taking the moral <laughs> high ground once you've already kind of trampled over the low ground you know what i mean so I mean, I'd say, I'd say that, that like, I would say I've been learning to kite surf and yeah, that's made out of, the kites made out of different technology that come from China and this sort of stuff. But that's like, that's as close as it's got to sort of almost toe surfing and basically wakeboarding with the wind. And that's been pretty good. You know, I just, I just get to the beach with a little backpack, blow it up and go out and um, I'm getting the same amount of training and the same amount of water time and my legs are getting stronger and it's, uh, you know, you go both ways, front and backside, switch and all that sort of stuff. That's been really, really good. And that right. means I don't have to get in the car and put fuel in the ski. And uh, that has been replacing the number of sessions I'd go out. And I suppose wind as well is the ultimate renewable source of propulsion, isn't it? And in fact, it's, it's what creates... Well, yeah, yeah place, exactly. I mean, it's, it's um, yeah. to reduce to zero would be the ultimate thing where you basically do nothing or don't exist. That would be the that would be the lowest impact you could have. Yeah. But whilst you're existing, I mean, you, you try to mitigate. But I think not not getting to the point where you're saying, you know, I'm really good because I do this. Just like I'm trying. I could do more. I know that. Yeah. And I'm not going to say you should do more or less, but you know, just leave it at that sort of thing. Interesting. You mentioned then that you said it's taken out of our hands at the moment. Um, perhaps. We'll we'll finish here by trying to make good of that unfortunate situation that we're in. Let's just turn our thoughts to home um, here for for a last question for you, Glenn. Let's get all dreamy here now. Home, we we probably don't come across Keridigian's best spots as often as I would like to, and I, you know, I know Elliot, you go up there sometimes as well. But they're often tricky spots to get. Let's just just fantasize, okay. imagine it for us, please. Describe a dream day of surfing at home. What does it look like? Where where are you? How big is it? Can you tell us where you are? How big is it? What's the what's the weather like? Who's with well, you? You you wake up and it is raining really really heavily, <laughs> and then you know or we know that the wind is in the correct direction. Right, okay. of course, yeah, the southeast. Um, so uh, or, or or it might be. And um, then it's dark and we drive to one of, one of the spots that we enjoy surfing and you drive there when the waves aren't breaking. And you have in the car, you have one packet of Trigrois waffles. I don't know if you had them, the, the toffee waffles, mandatory. Everyone thinks they're Welsh, but they're not. They came yeah. from a guy from Belgium, but we've adopted them. They're Welsh now, so we're, we're keeping them. Um, a point, uh, Pen Cadder Welsh cakes. And these aren't because they're sort of like, oh, nostalgic. These are absolutely love them. So they're, they're yeah. in the car. Um, and then you drive down and you go surfing. You get changed, you're soaking wet and blown around. And you probably get two surfs out of it, trying to surf with no gloves because you hate gloves. And gloves make you too tired, what they do for me anyway. And it would just be, it's long waves. When I moved to Swansea, I couldn't surf the waves there because I wasn't used to taking off and not knowing which way to go. 
So having grown upon reach breaks and point breaks, you take off guaranteed wall. So then you then you start surfing, whereas Langland was more challenging. So you, you know that there's going to be a wall, and like there's waves there that I'll test my my new normal wave surfboards always. And um, you finish at the end of the day if you've had a couple of surfs, and you go home and you sit by the fire and you have a cup of tea and you have marmite on toast because you've already eaten all your chugoisu waffles and Welsh cakes and um, absolutely knackered. But because it's winter, it's dark at 4:30, so you get home early and you can have a nice night's sleep and then you go again. And when I was about when I was about 19, I was uh, a student in Swansea and um, I, I ended up driving up overnight because I had to work every day, every. I worked in a nightclub and I had to drive up every night after work. And I did that for two weeks straight and had waves every day. And uh, yeah, it was two goes waffles, Welsh cakes, tea and marmite. I reckon, I reckon that's the best answer to any question we've ever posed anyone in, in, uh, in our 10 show history so far. I agree. Um, I yeah. think you, you've left me without too many regrets that I haven't yet been whipped into a water mountain at either Nazare or Mullum okay. or uh, Glyn. Although I'm not sure if that was the objective either, to be fair, but you, you've definitely given me a strong sense of, Kirith for uh, Keradigian again. I can't wait to get back up there and hopefully we'll share some of those fabled lineups get again back in, in the, the chocolate water. Yeah. In the meantime, can I say a massive thanks for taking the time to speak uh, with us? You've, uh, you've no been problem. a great It's been a pleasure, guys. It's been, been a lot of fun. Yeah, well, I also can't say I'll be asking you uh, for a toe lesson in Nazare any winter soon. I've enjoyed uh, the insight you've given us into such a challenging aspect of our sport, one that I'm fairly ignorant to. It seems surfing is always offering new challenges and it's great to hear from someone with such a versatile range of ocean experiences i'm always into expanding horizons so whether it's a um, a lesson uh, perhaps a, um, a foil lesson or some as yet unknown attempted feat of water madness hopefully we'll cross paths again soon too now listeners if you've enjoyed this 10th episode of crest then do please tell a friend and make sure you've hit that subscribe button be it through youtube apple podcasts or spotify we're also always up for reading tales submitted via our email, which is castcrest at gmail.com, as well as hearing any feedback you may have about our existing list of episodes. We're also contactable through Instagram, where you can follow us to get up-to-date info on future guests and episodes. And on that note, Tom's going to tell us a little something about who's coming up next. Thanks, Elliot. Well, it's someone you've already acquainted yourself with on Crest Duty. You've heard a pair of tales he told for our Nightmare Travel episode, but we've negotiated a trip to the Garden Studio for none other than one of the country's best-known faces, Slantet Majors Mark Vaughan. He's already been told to get an opinion ready for the jock culture debate that kicked off at the end of the Gwen Spurlock episode, and I'm sure you'll have plenty to say on that and other contemporary issues to do with surfing's place in the world and indeed Wales's place within surfing. And vice versa. Indeed. So do tune in for that one. It's going to be a belter. Expect good tales, useful tips and heated debate. Until then, thanks for listening and see you soon. Jochan Grando, Aguela Giotro Neto. Ta-da!